everybody, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, whatever in the hell you celebrate, happy whatever. So this is another episode of the Tactical Hour with Chris Stewart. This time it's going to be with Terry Garrison as well. Today's episode is brought to you by Reef Builders, winner of Best of Hows, five years running. Reef Builders is a Tempe, Arizona-based, full-service design-build construction company. What's a design-build company? It means you deal with one company for everything. Reef Builders is able to take your vision and bring it to life by drawing your plans, producing photorealistic, high-resolution 3D renderings of your kitchen, baths, and more, helping you design and pick your finishes, and finally, executing that vision. With their years of building experience and a superior client experience, using tools such as online project management software through their client portal that allows you to see your renovation in real time. Whether you're in town, on vacation, or living in another state, you have access to job progress photos, your build schedule, financials, and much more anywhere in the world. So if you're looking for a complete bath or kitchen renovation, a complete home renovation, a custom home designed and built, or a boutique commercial project built out, Reef Builders can deliver it. Reef Builders, your vision, their experience delivered. Welcome back, everybody. Today's episode is going to be with Terry Garrison. Terry Garrison is a fire chief in a local Valley Fire Department, but he has been fire chief uh, across the West. I am not going to do a good job at, at describing Terry, so uh, I'm going to have my co-host on the tactical guard, Chris Stewart, do it. But before I let him have that, I just want to let you know that when you um, hear this gentleman speak today, and when he talks about the line of duty deaths of his firefighters in Houston and things like that, you didn't get to see what we saw in this room today. The emotion that was on his face, the tears that came to his eyes. Um, it, it was an amazing thing. I, I haven't met a, a fire chief like him yet today. Um, he's a guy that really cares um, very much like, like, like Chris and myself, but just an amazing man, amazing fire chief. I was definitely uh, super stoked to have him here, and it, it went awesome. So, But I'm not going to fuck this up anymore. So, Chris, you tell us who Terry Garrison is, and we'll get into it. Yeah, absolutely. Besides being uh, one of the people that I look up to most in this world, um, Terry has been a fire chief um, since 2008. Um, he first became the fire chief uh, when he retired from the Phoenix Fire Department as the operations chief. Uh, his first job was in um, uh, Oceanside, California. Um, after that, he came back here for a bit, uh, worked for the Daisy Mountain Fire Department and helped uh, the Daisy run the Daisy Mountain Fire Department during a time when uh, uh, their fire chief was actually ill with cancer. Um, and from there, he went on to be the uh, fire chief of the uh, Houston, Texas Fire Department. So just a little perspective about Houston, uh, third largest fire department in the nation, roughly 4,000 firefighters, 100 engine companies, uh, 22 battalions, a really large place. Um, and had some uh, some incredibly positive experiences there and some uh, incredibly gut-wrenching experiences there. And now Terry, uh, after that completed, is back here working uh, in the city of Glendale. Um, and we uh, brought him on here to uh, help me have a discussion about risk management and really helping our, uh, our company officers and our chief officers start to understand what, what risk management is because it uh, seems a little bit mystic and a little bit... Um, uh, like it requires a lot of explanation. So um, uh, we'll have a conversation about that with Terry today. Um, and, uh, and I feel confident there'll be some other uh, crazy stories that come out of it as well. All right. So tactical hour number two with Terry Garrison. Here we go.
right, here we go. We've got another tactical hour uh, with Chris Stewart, and this time we have Glendale Fire Chief Terry Garrison. I am not going to fuck up his introduction as usual, <laughs> so I'm going to let Chris um, introduce him, and then uh, Chief Garrison's going to tell us a little bit about his career, and we're going to get into some other stuff. Uh, again, I'll let Chris do that. So thanks for listening, guys. Uh, these have been cool. The feedback's been awesome. Um, if you would like to give more feedback, tell us what you want to hear, uh, whether it be tactical stuff, crew development, leadership stuff, whatever, tell us uh, exactly what you want to hear. So get online, send us a message, uh, post something, do whatever you need to do to make this thing better because we want to make it better. So uh, without further ado, Chris Stewart. What is it the kids say? Hit me up. Yeah, hit me up. Yeah, hit yeah. me up, bro. All right. Okay. Well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, thanks again. Um, these are... Uh, uh, this is getting to be a lot of fun for me. So um, uh, I was able to uh, convince my good friend Terry Garrison to come in and uh, sit down and have a conversation with us today. Um, and we're going to talk more about uh, fireground stuff. Uh, uh, we had John Hinton in here a little while ago and uh, began that conversation with some uh, fireground integrity. And today I wanted to get into a conversation with Terry about uh, risk management and and all the different things uh, that uh, are going on right now in the American Fire Service with regards to risk management on uh, really on both sides of it. Um, so um, Terry and I go way back. Terry was actually my first battalion chief as a, as a brand spanking new captain um, in, I think it was in 2000 maybe. Uh, I had a... Uh, Temporary on engine nine, and Terry was uh, at battalion one. I think it was actually before South uh, South Deputy was there, and uh, and we started uh, uh, started basically our relationship started there over mountain bikes yeah. with uh, with John Shoemaker, uh, and uh, um, yeah. So and and then since then, he and I have been uh, uh, really good friends, and uh, and I've had the really cool honor of actually living vicariously through his. Uh, pretty significant experiences both in the Phoenix Fire Department and uh, as a fire chief in uh, uh, multiple places that I think we'll probably get into today. So Terry means a world to me. Um, much like much like John, Terry's been a fantastic mentor to me and helping me understand and, and taking the time to teach me a lot of the things that uh, I hold really, really valuable today and are especially important uh, uh, for firefighters and, and, and the, on the fire ground. So, uh, Terry, if you wouldn't mind, you know, introducing yeah. yourself and talking a little bit about your career. Um, uh, yeah, thank you. Oh, no, thank you for that. Uh, that's kind of humbling right there. You said it was kind of good on one end where you say, you know, all those nice things about me, but then it's kind of bad because it kind of makes me responsible for you. And I've seen, <laughs> I've seen what you've done. So I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah, that's my kid. Well, can you tell him to get his finger out of his nose? There's so, a long list of yeah. people that would like to cuss you out. <laughs> right? So, uh, no, thank you for that. And the mountain biking was our first experience together and, and hanging out. We probably talked more about firefighting, uh, why we're riding mountain bikes than anything else, right? I mean, We talk about mountain bikes when we're when we're at work, and we talk about fire, fire stuff when we're on our bikes. That's since, true. Since we're all mountain bikers, um, can you tell me the year so I can make fun of your bikes? <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was, uh, yeah, late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, not too yeah. bad then. So. No, so. Not, not fully rigid. <laughs> oh, it might have been. <laughs> yeah, it might have been, yeah. We broke some frames and some forks. I remember riding and all of a sudden, oh, my, my bike's strange, and I broke a fork. So, yeah. yeah. Was... So, so Terry and I are such good friends that um, I crashed one day 
riding in a place I probably shouldn't even have crashed. And it was a significant crash. And I actually snapped my seat off. Ooh. And so, uh, and we were, and we brain. were, we were, yeah, and we were a little ways away. So, uh, I was going to be standing for the re- remainder of the ride <laughs> to get back to the, and he chose to stand with me. So he, yeah, he had yeah. a perfectly functioning yeah. bike and stand up. And he thinks I stood all the way, but sometimes he'd get ahead of me and I'd sit yeah. down. So you can do that too, right? Yeah. He never saw that coming. So, well, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, you had John Hinton on here, who's, uh, I think, one of the most uh, remarkable firefighters in the planet. That guy's got so much knowledge and, wow. and skills and ability. And he's able to really share that in a, in a really special way. And him and I, you know, we had the experience of uh, both working for Bruno for all those years. So that's kind of where I'll start. So I was hired in uh, Phoenix Fire Department in 1974. I was 19 years old, right out of the Army. I was a crew chief on a Huey in the Army, and uh, I thought that that made me kind of special until I uh, got to the fire department and realized that, man, there was all kinds of people with all kinds of unique experiences coming together, especially in the 70s. You know, when you became a firefighter, it was pretty much manual labor. It was, it was you were going to be there, either a hod carrier, a block layer, or a firefighter. Those were kind of the those kind of jobs that you were going to get. That was a vocational training. At, it at, really uh, was. Uh, at uh, where'd you go? You went to Alhambra. Alhambra High School. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was it was a great place to drop out of and join the army at the age of seven. <laughs> at the age of seventeen, I woke up in boot camp just ten days after turning seventeen, and I I still remember the uh, the drill instructor leaning over me and screaming at me, and that's the last time I slept in in my life. So, uh, yeah, so I became a firefighter in 1974. Bruno wasn't even the, the fire chief at that time. He was actually an assistant chief, and uh, we had heard a lot about Bruno uh, during our training, but it didn't mean anything to us. Hey, this guy's, this guy's around. But he's, we had a fire chief at the time that really didn't uh, care too much about uh, his employees, um, and he didn't show up at our graduation, so Bruno did. Bruno showed up and shook our hands and, and introduced himself and really took the time to say hello to us. And it was the first time that I, after being spending two years in the military, where really you know, anybody with a rank above you didn't care too much about what you thought, where he actually, hey, what do you think? Uh, what do you need from us? And it was just incredible. So from that point on, it's like, oh, man, I love this dude. He's awesome. And I got to work for him for 30 years. Uh, I've worked in every um, division of the fire department in Phoenix. Um, I became a paramedic early on because it was like a $426 a month pay increase. And uh, I thought, man, my ex-wives can use that. So <laughs> I thought, why not Why not give that to them and work a little bit harder? Service-driven guy. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's, that's, awesome. what's always, yeah, that's what I did. So, And then I, I spent about 12 years as a firefighter paramedic. I, I loved, like probably everybody else when they're new firefighters, is I loved um, working in the busiest part of towns. I worked next to County Hospital. Eleven. Oh, it was great. Station 11 was my primary station. I worked there as a firefighter, as a paramedic, came back as a captain to work there as a captain paramedic. I thought it was just awesome to take patients into that arena and watch them crack their chests open and just do everything they could to, to um, really try to get that patient to survive. But all, all the hospitals weren't doing that back then. You know, it was a teaching hospital. And so I made captain. I took the captain's test for about 12 years on the job. And uh, first time, it was wonderful because I didn't study a lot. Somebody said, hey, take the test. And I came out number 55, so I got called speed limit. 
for, for about a year uh, till the fireman. next test. Yeah, and then the next test, I was able to get pretty high on the list, and I actually studied and, and took it seriously. And? And uh, so then I was a fire captain. Well, and was the number. Come on. Oh, it was number eight. No it was number eight. eight. Yeah, which Single was, digit. Which yeah. was way, you know, way higher. Than Nine guys on the list? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. It was pretty high because uh, nobody expected me to be that high. So that was kind of fun. Sleeper. But, yeah, and then after that, it's kind of like, hey, I, I might as well focus on this. I'm 13 years into this. Maybe I ought to make this a career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the whole time I was actually trying to get back into the army to fly helicopters and uh, actually passed the test and was headed back when I uh, injured my back and wasn't able to go back in. So I stayed in the fire service and, and made uh, really loved the fire service. But I wasn't somebody who wanted to be a firefighter. I, I walked into the HR department of the city uh, at 19 years old with my DD-214. Hey, I want to work for the city aviation department. A lady looked at me and she said, you're an idiot. And she gave me that look and said, we don't have an aviation department, but there's the, the fire department line if you want to get in that. It's the last It was week. full of idiots, so <laughs> yeah, right? you'll be perfect yeah. for them. <laughs> Stand behind that other yeah. idiot yeah. and get in line. <laughs> so, yeah, so I got hired and, and lucked out there. Um, so I did my uh, 30 years in Phoenix. I left when I retired. Um, I was the assistant chief of operations, which was uh, kind of a big deal in the fact that um, – we really were ch still trying to make the changes from the Brett Tarver incident. I don't know if John Hinton told you, but during the Brett Tarver incident, when we lost him at the Southwest uh, Freeway Mark, or excuse me, um, supermarket fire, uh, John was the um, support officer, and I was a senior advisor. So I was actually a deputy chief assigned to the uh, south side of town to a desk job. It was kind of a district position. And we responded to the fires. And I got there. Uh, as I was driving there, I heard the May Day. I heard the conversations taking place on the radio, the reports. And I got there as the command van got there. And, and John and I and, and uh, Richard Wolf at the time, who's the incident commander, we worked that fire. And uh, that was really the first time that I had – well, actually, it wasn't the first time. It was the second time that I saw um, – something really tragic like that in my career. We had a firefighter when I was a uh, fairly new firefighter, Del Lockett, who fell through a roof in Maryville on a 1,600-square-foot house and died at that fire. I wasn't on duty, but I remember the impact that that had on, on me. So uh, fast forward, I'm the operations chief, and uh, we had a drop program where um, at the time you could enter the drop, Deferred Retirement Option Plan. Everybody knows about that now. And what it was in Phoenix is you could actually enter the drop, get your big bolus, you freeze your retirement, you get your big bolus, and then you can stay on the job. And hmm. I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to get that big bolus. I pictured like a snake with this big giant wad of money. And then I would continue my career. Uh, but they came out and said, the state, um, no, everybody's got to retire after like, five hold years. Hold on. Wait a second. You can't get rich? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Well, I was needed to get that money back to the ex. So uh, <laughs> and then you should keep feed them. But uh, so, yeah, I had to uh, retire at the age of 49. So um, I started looking for a job prior to retiring and uh, applied for a position at Oceanside, Oceanside, California, which just sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, if you've ever been there, you, you know there. that it's, it's not as great as it sounds. <laughs> it's right next to Camp Pendleton for all the Marines out there, and I will never say ex-Marines. I learned that uh, 
very quickly is uh, all the Marines, uh, former Marines, but I still I think I just call them Marines. You and know the uh, statement once Marine, always a Marine. Oh yeah, and they are just tremendous. So I worked there for about three years, but I didn't like the city manager that I was working for. Um, in California, a lot of the departments have three-person staffing. And this guy, and it seems like ever since, I've, I'll talk more about being a fire chief and arguing with city managers and mayors. <laughs> but this, this city manager wanted a two-person engine company, wanted to save money. And so we had three-person engine companies, and he wanted me to make it a two, and I wouldn't do it. So we had one of those meetings in his office one day where he says, no, I'm the city manager, you're going to do this. No, I'm the fire chief. I'm not. No, I'm the city manager. Ah, you are. No, I'm the fire chief. I'm not. And then it, we started cussing each other, uh, F-bombs. Secretary shuts the door so we can cuss louder at each other. <laughs> and uh, I finally said, hey, I'm. if you want to be the fucking fire chief, there's a fucking white helmet in my office. Go put it on. You can be the fire chief. I like it. Yeah, that like was. It. Uh, it seemed like a good move at the time, but then I had to find a new address. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it ended really well, and, and you know, we, I kind of knew this was going to happen. I had already talked to the union. I love the firefighters there in the union. Uh, I still got good friends there. I still talk to them every day, and uh, not every day, I'm sorry, uh, several, times, several times a year, and I think about them every day. But uh, we, we still stay connected, and some of the same guys that were there that, were, that I was able to uh, kind of work with. And we knew this was going to happen, and I need to take the stand. So I did. And at the end of the conversation with the city manager, it's like, well, you can get rid of me for this cost. And he said, how much? And I told him, and he said, I'll be back. He went down, talked to the city attorney. He comes back. He says, when can you leave? <laughs> and honestly, I said, man, I didn't ask for enough, did I? Yeah. So I fast. had to go back and tell the department, hey, guys, I can't stay here with you any longer. I I kind of, you know, that would that was a sword. That was the heel that I that I drew my sword and died on. And they got another uh, fire chief, and he made a two-person engine company for a short period of time. Um, nice guy, but you know, he did something that I wasn't willing to do. And they went back to three-person later. Yes, uh, man. Yeah, he's you know he's a nice guy, and he did that. And and I don't know why he would do that, but that's the commitment he made. And he was from inside the system. Um, and uh, thank God nobody was hurt, right? Because that's the key is, you know, customer service, firefighter <laughs> safety. I told the, the city manager, I said, two-person engine company is not an engine company, right? It's an ambulance on a really big piece of apparatus or not even that because they can't transport. So um, I stay connected to those guys, and they ended up they're – still, they're still battling that same city manager. He's the mayor there now. And uh, but um, they are really great firefighters. I learned a lot from them. I think they said they learned a lot from me. We were able to uh, introduce Blue Card at the time, mm -hmm. which wasn't really Blue Card. It was the eight functions of command, which Blue Card actually is. And we we're able to get that implemented in their organization. Nice. There, was, there was a couple bumps along the way that, you know, every organization has these uh, knuckleheads. That's what I call them. I was like, yeah, that's a nice way to that's, yeah. that's a nice way to define. I've it. always mm -hmm. used knuckleheads because uh, they're not mean spirited all the time, although they can be <clears throat> come that way. But they're knuckleheads in the sense that they just don't get it, and, and it's like, no, this this is a safer, better way to do it, and they just don't listen. So they had a couple people we ended up uh, have actually taken the um, suburbans at the time 
And I physically myself removed the command post from the back of the Suburban to get this one uh, chief officer to sit in the front. He said, no, I'm not. He would get up. We're going we're gonna to do this where we're going to get in the front of the seat. This is going to be your workspace. You're going to manage the fire from here. You know, a very important uh, first component to uh, the eight functions of command is assuming command and, and controlling the incident. And I think that getting out in the, in the back under the extreme elements, especially in California, you know, there's a lot of weather there, believe it or not, and uh, you can't hear and things are happening and he wouldn't do that. He said, no, I'm gonna keep coming to the back. And I, he may have even been the guy that built the really nice cabinets in the back. So I drove the vehicle, <laughs> I had the vehicle drive over to the training academy and me and a couple other guys removed that from the back. Like he it. came to work the next day. It's like, okay, that didn't, there you go, buddy. <laughs> Sit in the front. But uh, so anyway, I uh, left there after three years uh, because of that uh, disagreement. <laughs> and um, came back to the valley here, and uh, I was helping out in Daisy Mountain. I actually, uh, Tom Healy, who was a fire chief in Daisy Mountain, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And he asked me to come back and, and kind of be the interim role until he got through his chemo. And I said, absolutely. Daisy Mountain is a, a fire district north of the valley here. It's part of the automatic age system, so it has all the kind of same components to the Phoenix Fire Department and, and the other fire departments in the valley through our automatic age system. Automatic age is basically where we don't have any boundaries. We respond in each other's area. It's a closest unit concept. Wherever the call comes out, our dispatch in or dispatch for 26, 28 different agencies, who's ever closest goes. So it's, it, you would think that it's, it's just an extension of the Phoenix Fire Department, somewhat like Glendale, I'll talk about that. But, um, so you and Tom worked together in Phoenix, right? Yeah, we worked together in Phoenix. Tom had many more years than me. Uh, we, back, back in that time, you would call many more years, like five or six, right? That was a big deal coming on the fire department. But he built our health center. Remember that? Absolutely. Yeah. He, was the, he was the first guy that really understood, I think, for our system, uh, firefighter wellness and staying healthy. Back then, it was more of a physical wellness. You know, I know now we're getting to more of the the, uh, the medic, uh, mental aspects of wellness and that. But back then, he was the guy that took care of people in a physical kind of way. And he was the guy that built fire stations. And that was his claim to fame, too, is he built the fire stations in Daisy Mountain. So um, he, he said, can you be the interim chief? Well, he ended up dying uh, from that disease that got him. He, he was as strong as the day he, the day he died then, he was as he was six or seven years earlier he just one of those guys that just he was a bull and just a great guy well i didn't want to be the daisy mountain fire chief um as much as i like those guys like nah you know i'm more of a uh i don't know maybe a big city fire chief in many aspects so uh, i had a buddy call me from houston that i work with at texas i work for the texas engineering extension service and what we did there is we did um exercises across the state of Texas. This is before the towers actually fell. And we did exercises where we would go and work with the local jurisdictions. And the way it worked in Texas is they would have um, departments that would work together and the judge would be the kind of the highest authority within the emergency management system. And uh, they held, I think they called them district disaster cells or something like that. I can't remember the exact name right now. Somebody probably knows that. 
But we would work with different jurisdictions. So the first year we traveled about 13 different cities throughout Texas and built these exercises. And it was uh, firefighters, police officers, a lot of military and some FBI guys. There was about 40 of us that would um, work on these exercises and help the locals. So we got to do that. So I met this one guy uh, from Houston. He was a Houston battalion chief. So when the job in Houston was opening up, they knew in Houston that they were going to hire an outside fire chief. Well, Houston is uh, the fourth, the third largest fire department in the country, the fourth largest city at the time, and the third largest fire department because they have a fourth shift. So we're about 4,200 firefighters. And I thought, there's no way. So they're going to look at you know, Terry Garrison and say, he's in Daisy Mountain. Let's hire him from Houston. So I guy kept bothering me. Come on, test, test, test. And I thought, okay, I'll test just to get him off my, off my back. And um, so I tested. And, and Houston's interesting because Houston, in the history of their career, they've only had – I was the second outside uh, firefighter they hired from the outside. The other guy was in 1989. Apparently everybody said he was a good guy. But they ran him out of town um, after 60 days. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so 60 yeah. days. So now, way. 19, yeah, that's Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and they're good guys. They just, And to everyone that I talked to when I was there, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but they all said, man, they, they shouldn't have done that. They should have kept him. He was a pretty good guy. Hmm. And they probably ended up with somebody that they thought wasn't as uh, well prepared as he was. So... Um, I took the test. I get hired, and uh, oh boy, I, I you know I caught the car. So uh, I'm the second guy, and I would go to fire station. I visited a they have ninety plus fire stations. I'd visit a fire station. They'd say, "What's your goal, chief?" And I'd say, "61 days for the last guy." <laughs> that was my goal. Set the bar high. Yeah, Set that was my goal. High. But I found that uh, Houston firefighters are tremendously talented firefighter, talented as can be, uh, f- uh, fearless in many ways. They care about the customer, and they care about each other. And the chief that was before me would, did a really good job with them. But the mayor um, wanted an outside fire chief. And, they and knew, it's a mayor-led system, yeah, right, it's Terry? A, it's not it's a, a city manager yeah, system. Yeah, no city manager. you got a strong mayoral form of government. She pretty much controls the agenda at the council meeting. So um, 16 uh, council members and the mayor, and the mayor controls it. Wow. So I worked power. for a female mayor there. And she treated, uh, she treated me pretty well. Uh, we had some, um, a lot of people don't know this, but on the front end of it, uh, she offered me the job, and I said, I'll take the job, but there's three things that I really, you know, I, I kind of need. And uh, the first one, uh, I know she was after firefighter pension. She had to do something about the pension system. I understood that pensions are a big issue across the country. I love pensions. I got a few of them, <laughs> right? So they're, they're one of my favorite things. Collecting them. Right, you're collecting them. But um, she wanted that. So I, I said to her, you know, I can never stand next to you, beside you, behind you when you're talking about pensions. And she agreed to that. And she never asked me to do that because I don't feel like, especially as an outside person, how was I going to lead a fire department uh, as an outside person? and look like I'm the mayor's puppet on pension. So I certainly couldn't do that. And we talked a little bit about the uh, 
The, the other thing I was concerned about is I'd heard rumors that the medical director uh, reported directly to the mayor and not under the fire chief, even though, you know, EMS was under the fire chief. So she assured me that he worked for me. Later, that wasn't the case because uh, that was in my last year there. I stayed there over five years. But in my uh, throughout the, the process, he actually did work for me, and him and I got along great. Dr. Purse is his name. Good guy. Uh, really wants to do the best for the customers. You'll notice that most of the things I say about people are positive because w what I found, and I've been a firefighter now 42 year, 43 plus years, is that most people are really good. We get good people in the fire service and good people that want to do that um, service delivery system. So I'm pretty happy about that. I, I left Phoenix after 30 years, and actually there's only one guy I didn't like, and he was a dick. So uh, everybody knew he was a dick, you know. It was uh, it's kind of unanimous too. Yeah, it's Chris. He's sitting over there. Yeah. <laughs> no. you're, you're stuck with him now. Right, so, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. you're the one that trained him. And it, he's a dick in a good way. Yeah. No, so Big this dick. guy was a knucklehead just because he was a bully and mean spirited, and he didn't give a shit about the firefighters or the customers. But uh, and so I got to tell him that a few times. But um, back to Houston, I guess I should just continue. I feel like I'm saying a lot about no, this. Yeah, but but Houston, going. you know, Houston's an incredibly busy system. And uh, I remember when I first got there, so you got this outside fire chief, you know, uh, kind of a Barney Fife attitude kind of guy. I'm not, I don't come across as a, as a guy who's incredibly smart. I just, I'm there for the, the mustache park. fools. Everybody I know, right? I got, you right. grow a big mustache. Actually, yeah. this is a glue on at yeah. any moment. This thing good. could fall off. <laughs> yeah, I've had that happen. You said there was three things you named two. Yeah. So, so thank you for bringing me back to that. So it was a city manager. It was the, um, the uh the medical director the medical director the, pensions. the pension and then the fact that that i could pick my own command team so oh, this wow. is a big deal so big uh deal. what had happened in the past in houston and this mayor as many people didn't like her and firefighter didn't like her she was she was focusing on pensions and i get that but she made a commitment to me that no i get to pick my command team and in the past uh Every city council member would come to the fire chief, and they would they would want you to pick somebody. So you ended up with a bunch of people who wanted to be fire chief. They didn't want to be support people, and uh, so I picked. I was able to select uh, this. I think I, I ended up with twelve chief officers. There was a there was an additional assistance. Assistance. Yeah. Twelve. Wow. Twelve assistant chiefs. You know, it's a big system. Ninety yeah. plus fire uh, stations. And so I was able to select them all through an interview process. Now, all those selections weren't great, but they were my selections. Later, I had to make some changes. Um, one guy who's still there um, was my operations chief. Uh, one, my, the one that I had was a good selection, but he retired. And then I got an operations chief. I'll just say uh, his name is Richard Mann. Absolutely the best fire uh, operations chief in the planet. I mean, wow. he honestly, even compared to Hinton and myself and Nick Brunacini and, and the things that I've seen, this guy is like right there. Uh, he's, he's about as good as it gets. Knowledgeable, cares about the people. Everything he says focuses on firefighter safety or customer service, and then he's got the knowledge to to back that up. He's not a fire chief yet because he didn't have his ticket. He doesn't have his degree, right? So... Um, doesn't make you smarter because you get a degree. 
Stewart, I, Chris Stewart. <laughs> right, Chris Stewart. So, and I would tell anybody out there if you're if you're thinking about being a fire chief, you need to get your education. So I lucked out and got a. Uh, I actually ended up. I was a high school dropout, joined the army uh, at age 17, and ended up getting my master's years later, only because I needed that ticket to be a fire chief, and I needed a job. But I don't know if you know how much smarter you get when you take classes. There's people that. They, this, it's kind of like that badge when they pin the gold badge on you all of a sudden you know everything there is to know about everything and also, that's not the case and same thing with the degree you know as you move forward you can learn some things but then how are you going to apply yeah I don't think it makes you smarter because I have a master's degree too it definitely doesn't make you smarter but it allows you to learn in a different way it allows yeah. you, it forces you in an uncomfortable position to do something different and yeah. I think people that, that think that because they have a, a bachelor's degree or master's degree or PhD that they're smarter than everybody else. It's like, right. no, you just happen to go down that path and work a little bit. For right, it. right. And what it, I, and I understand too that, you know, and I, I talk to city managers about this is that they're, not everybody is in a position to get, to take the time, depending on their family circumstances. Um, you know, uh, I know some firefighters right now that their kids have some special needs and it would be difficult for them, but they would, they would be great. Um, fire chiefs and they do great in school but do they really have the time to do that right and so um that's interesting is that unique that uh, a fire chief would have the uh, ability to pick his his own um, or her own command team i don't think it is t is it so it's interesting so say for instance in phoenix right now if somebody was if kara would decide to retire and somebody would come into phoenix i just talk about them because you know we're they're we're kind of sitting right outside their city and it's a large system you would probably get the the chief officers that were there that would be gotcha. your team so you wouldn't get an opportunity to replace them unless one of them uh, through attrition one of them retired your pickup but in this case with Houston, uh, you pretty much come in and and you and I promoted people, believe it or not. So I had an opportunity to promote people uh, from fire captain on up. Wow! So you could take somebody from fire captain and make them assistant chief, and and uh, I actually did that. That's a hell of a jump. Yeah, and and it and it's difficult on on the person that you're doing that with. I did that because. Uh, you know, it's funny because um, in Houston, I thought, you know, I needed to get some things accomplished. I know that we were going to create some sort of organizational change. Um, the mayor wanted some change. She mayor was concerned about firefighter safety, and she wanted some change in firefighter safety. So we talked a lot about the eight functions of command in my interview with her. She didn't understand all of it, but she knew, hey, here's a process for change. Well, a lot of that Houston was doing, but it, we just had to kind of um, – or organizationally identify uh, that as someplace we were going to go. So um, where was I going with that? So uh, anyway, I did select uh, some, some fire captains, and, and, you know, it just didn't work out for them. That was too big of a jump. There, there's some mature, organizational maturity wasn't there. There were some issues that took place. But, yeah, so I got to pick uh, the assistant chiefs, and it was a big deal because I did have council members that contacted me and, and wanted me to select people, and um, I didn't, and, and I did the interviews, and some of those people um, are still assistant chiefs there today, and I've been gone uh, almost five years, and they're still there. Actually, a little over four years, and they're still assistant chiefs. So Retrospectively, um, if you were to have the same opportunity to pick those people again, would that process stay the same, or would you change it? Yeah, so it's weird. So you think about a process where you come into an organization with 4,200 
firefighters and you pick and you're going to select the group you want to lead want to help you lead and, and, you and terry you don't have any historical no, perspective no. with them you didn't grow up with them no. you're meeting them for the first time right yeah and they're meeting me for the first time and they don't have any you know they don't so in phoenix i left they i'm the assistant chief oh everybody knows garrison you know that kind of deal and you end up in houston it's like who the hell is garrison they don't care right but uh so i had to i had to really rely on just my gut <clears throat> so i did some interviews i looked at resumes and I got it down to about 40 or 50, and I did 40 or 50 interviews. And then what I decided was, hey, I'm going to be here either 60 days or 61 days or whatever. <laughs> I'm going to pick people. I'm going to select people that I think uh, care about the organization, care about the people, and that would be fun to work with. Right? Just yeah. That's kind of what we pick when we it's pick kind of like picking an Ambo partner. Yeah, right? Fun. You just I, I need to have people that, hey, we're, it's going to be some hard days. you got to have a positive attitude. You can't, but not pie in the sky attitude, and we're going to try to make some change. So I did that, and the people that I picked, they they fit all those categories. They were they're nice. They cared about the organization. Later on, I, I learned that you know going from a captain all the way to assistant chief, even though they still cared about the organization, it was just difficult to keep them in those places. So as I learned more and uh, about it, uh, I think it was over. About a two-year period, I had I replaced some of them and brought some more experienced people in who had those uh, not only the organizational maturity and understood what we needed to get done, but also they cared about the people too, right? But there are some, you know, you go into a fire station and you know, <laughs> you guys know, you sit at the table, you've never been there before, you know the dumbass. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's usually fact, me because I'm if, looking the well, window. Well, that's, that's what <laughs> I was going to tell you. If you don't know who He's the got on his sign. <laughs> yeah. If you don't know who the knucklehead is. It's you. It's you. <laughs> so, um, so you can kind of throw those people out, and then you kind of narrow it down. And it ended up being actually a really good diverse group, too. I mean, it, the mayor was worried about diversity. Uh, the organization, you know, I'd heard from some people, I'm there to make more women firefighters, could, or women assistant chiefs, because we have a woman mayor. But that wasn't the case. She didn't care about that. She did want diversity. I was able to select a couple of females that are still, they're still, uh, one of them is still assistant chief there today. And she's, she's well respected. And she weighs about 112 pounds and can kick my ass. So <laughs> uh, that's the kind of personality she had. So um, it worked out. We had a really great, diverse organization uh, of leaders there and then assigning them and moving them forward. So the first thing I did in Houston is that I knew we were going to create change. In the ocean side, I realized the change was difficult. So, so I kind of created this change model. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if you heard about it. It's a four-step process. Um, and you got to go through each process, and it's really simple, and it's kind of stolen from a lot of what Bernasini said because everything I do or say is stolen from him in some way, shape, or form. And the step, the first step is you set uh, expectations. Everybody has to understand those expectations. They need to know where they fit. You could do that personally or organizationally. Here's our expectations. The second is you need to train to those expectations. Everybody needs to understand you know, how to do it or what their role is in it. The third is you need to monitor performance. And actually, somebody has to be watching the work. And, and the last is you hold people accountable. So I've called it an accountability model. It's actually a change model. And the reason I came up with that is early on in, as an as a assistant chief, you guys have heard this. So if you go out and you try to tell somebody to do something um, different, whatever that is, the first thing they, they say, well, well, I didn't know I was supposed to. 
expectations, as an example. Well, I don't know how to do that. Nobody ever showed me how to do that. Training. And the, and the last one was, well, I've done it this way forever, and nobody's told me it's wrong. Monitoring performance. Do firemen say that? Yeah, isn't that wonderful? I yeah. said that. Yeah, I say true. that, yeah. So um, it seemed to me like, hey, I'm going to um, take those excuses for somebody for not being able to correct somebody or the deflection that they use to not want to be corrected and create a change model or accountability model. So we came up with that, and, and that was adopted in the Houston Fire Department. That was the first document that I It read. was adopted in the Phoenix Fire Department, too. Okay. After? No, yeah. Nice. So in, in Houston, the first thing we did— Almost congruently. Oh, yeah. Congruently. Oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> wonder how that got leaked out. Yeah, right? <laughs> I don't know where it came from. Okay, gotcha. So I, uh, it was nice because we got that out and everybody understood that. And, and so we trained on that first. And this is where this operations chief was awesome, uh, Richard Mann, is he was able to get that out and said, hey, here's the first thing. We need to, we need to uh, create this change model. This needs to go out. And we adopted that as the kind of the model for the organization. So anyway, we, we created change. You know, in, in Houston, I'll, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. But in Houston, you know, it was rough in Houston. The uh, rough part about it was uh, we lost firefighters. And while I was there, we lost seven firefighters in fires and an eighth one later on. And I'll just talk a little bit about some of those. But um, And that's really, those are some of the things, Terry, I wanted to get into. Because that's, yes. the, that's the risk management perspective that I think, you have a very, very unique one, and that's thank you. Well, let's do that. So let's let's let me maybe use those as we go forward in the conversation because um, I just remember, you know, I uh, and nobody should have to do this, but knocking on doors and and telling people that your your spouse will not come home or your loved one will never come home again. You did that personally. Every time I could, every time I could. Now we had one fire. Um, that our Southwest Freeway fire, where we lost four firefighters simultaneously, uh, right. just in an instant. And of course, I couldn't make every, but right. I talked to, and to this day, all the eight firefighters' families that, and this is, I'm not bragging about this. I, I just, it's not enough. I know that, but I call them um, during that time. I call them uh, when their spouses passed away, and I check on them and see how they're doing, and I send them a text. Um, see if they follow up. I don't want to bother them. It's kind of hard. It's like, yeah. you know, is it a bad that I call you? Is it bring back memories of something negative or is it show support? And so it's kind of, and it's not about me. I don't want to look like it's like I'm trying to do something to feel special about it. But you really become connected to the families when you lose a firefighter. Yeah. And uh, Or you should. Yeah, you should. You should. You should. And for me, you know, organizationally, you feel responsible for it. The fire yeah. chief, the buck stops right there at the fire chief. So That's we should talk deal. about that. That's right? a big deal that that you continue to do that because um, uh, no matter what industry, no matter it's your own personal family, friends, stuff like that, no one wants to be forgotten. No. And that, and that's and just for an outsider looking in, that's a very good way to remind those families that hey that you know your your spouse your husband your wife or whatever it was was will never be forgotten by me or by you know anybody else so that's no. a big deal man you should uh, congratulations to do on that well thank you and you know so um i say thank you but i don't know if that's right but uh, you know what so i think that the family you owe them two things and that's the first piece you owe them is 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 and they'll tell you what you owe them and they'll tell you you don't forget us and they, they don't tell you those in words all the time, although some of them do. 
Um, but you don't forget us because we're here. We were here for 20-some years, uh, one firefighter. We were here for um, 11 months, probationary firefighter. So um, you have that, but then you also, they tell you is, hey, um, learn from this. Learn from my, my, my husband, my daughter, my son. Learn from their death. And they, they hold you accountable in that, and they look you right in the eye, right when they get over the kind of the emotional part of it, and a day or two goes by, man, they're looking you right in the eye, and they go, okay, this is where it gets real, buddy. You need to learn from this, and I get the chills just thinking about it. And that's our commitment, is we need to take that and, first of all, do everything we can to keep from deaths occurring on the fire ground, but secondly, we got to learn from every one of our incidents, how can we do better, because we owe that uh, to the firefighters on the fire ground moving forward, but we also owe that to the people who've lost their loved ones. And um, I just remember um, the, the last firefighter we lost, uh, his wife looking at me, Ellen, Ellie, and she says, Chief, she goes, I know it, I get it, but you got to learn from this. You can't let this happen again. And she was in my face poking me in the chest in a real positive kind of way. And I meant right. it when I told her, yeah, we're, we're going to, we're going to. And I talk to her every year, and she's doing better and better. But uh, I, 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 that's a commitment that we have. Can't say enough about that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Terry, I want to I let you finish because you got one more chapter, oh. I think. And then, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but then I do. So, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead so, and finish So up. I ended up, so, you know, I talked about 60, uh, 60 days. In the, I want to do 60 days. We ended up doing over 60 months. So I stayed there five years. And honestly, I think I would have still been there um, uh, beyond, uh, beyond that. So what happens in, in Houston is because it's a strong mayoral system, the mayor's uh, termed out in six years. And uh, the new mayor comes in, they get a new police chief, fire chief, city attorney, all those. Uh, the only constant is the medical director, but they get all these new positions. So uh, they got a new mayor there um, that they have now that they're having uh, really a hell of a time with this guy. But um, as that was happening, and I was trying to determine whether I was going to stay there. And by the way, the, the time that I was there, my wife uh, was was in Phoenix with some grandson. My grandson had some medical issues, so we lived apart for 40 months. Three and a half years, my wife and I lived apart, and I stayed in Houston. That's three and a half years of her life. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. She's She seems so much younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honey? <laughs> It's weird when you when you you, know, you open the door when you come home. It's like anybody here, yeah. <laughs> honey. I don't wear this size shirt. <laughs> what the hell? Thank God it was smaller than mine. And my dad said, "Never steal a cowboy hat that's larger than your head, because the guy's gonna find it." Oh yeah, you can't fill that hat. <laughs> We've seen some guys with some huge heads. Oh, <laughs> right? oh yeah. yeah, they came up in, in Hinton's. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, so at the same time, they were uh, a position in uh, Glendale, Arizona, opened up, which is basically Phoenix. It's Phoenix West. It's if you look at a map of the Phoenix area, Glendale's tucked right in there. It's a, a backwards L shaped right in the center of the Phoenix area, and and it's where I grew up. I went to grade school, high school. It's the West Side. It's kind of like you know supposed to be the rough side of town. Oh, but yeah. when I grew up, 
No, my sister lived there until she died um, of cancer last year. And I'd say, sis, you got to get out of this neighborhood. There's crazy people in here. And she says, Terry, you don't understand. I am the crazy woman in the neighborhood. <laughs> and she was, and she was right. I had one rule when I was dating. Never date a woman with a 623 cell phone number. Yeah, that's yeah. it, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 I had several rules, but that was one of them. <laughs> For you people that don't know, that's the west side. Yeah. And, and I'm very proud of being from the west side. You know, that some of the best people drop out of that Alhambra High School. You know? <laughs> so right oh yeah phoenix fire department school of management right yeah. <laughs> that's that's it so um this job opened up and uh it was an opportunity to come back home basically to uh, my office is about a mile from where i grew up so uh I, I made the decision to leave houston took the test and was hired here and i've been here for the last four years and uh it's funny because the glendale firefighters um, we have yellow fire engines. Oh, we and know. They, yeah, you guys, everybody knows <laughs> huh, it. I did not realize that. Yeah, that's right. And so it's beautiful for you across the country. We actually had a news reporter at one time. There was a car accident on the freeway, and this wasn't long ago. And, the new, and you know, we've had yellow fire trucks apparently for a very long time. And the news reporter says, it looks like a school bus is involved. <laughs> no, lady, that's the fire engine. <laughs> so there you go. They're, very, they're beautiful. We're very proud of our yellow fire trucks. Gold chrome. Well, yeah, it's it's right. We got it, but our uh, it's not changing, and I actually kind of like it now because when you when you look at a uh, something on the news and you see a group of firefighters in our automatic gauge system fighting a fire, a large fire, that yellow one sticks out. And I go, okay, my guys are there taking care of business, and uh, we're known as the Care Bears in Glendale, and this happened long before I got there. And uh, there was a point in time where that was, you know, if you're not a Care Bear, calling somebody a Care Bear is uh, like, that's negative, right? Yeah, we're fighting. Yeah, <laughs> like you call me a Care Bear. But actually, I, what I wanted to do when I got there is capitalize on that because that means we take care of the customer, right? We do a really good job of taking care of the customer. And they did that long before I got there. So I embraced the Care Bear. We're actually getting some hats with a grizzly on it. And the grizzly isn't mean he's going to pet your child. But um yeah, so we got that going for us in Glenda. They're good I don't know guys. if that's a good idea. Yeah. Well, right? <laughs> a mean grizzly bear. It's funny, isn't it? So uh, Glendale, for you across the country, if you're listening, so Glendale has nine fire stations, and we go on about 40, 42 or 43,000 calls a year. Extremely busy system. Um, and we, we're... It, the insurance companies, uh, insurance agents put out a list every year, the top 100 cities where you're likely to have a house fire. Well, Glendale's number 100. Our goal is to move up on that list. <laughs> Not really, right? That's wrong. I think that's wrong. I don't know if you want to be on that list. But we're an incredibly uh, busy system with great firefighters. We have about 250 firefighters, and uh, I, I've been there for four years, and uh it's really, honestly, it's the same battles that I faced in, uh, with city management as I faced in Oceanside and sometimes in Houston is that, um, you know, we're talking about we're having discussions about three-person staffing instead of four, and I'm not going to do that. And we're having discussions about, um, you know, do, we, do, you need to have, does, do you need to have that many firefighters? Do you need to have that many paramedics? The conversations haven't changed. I'm just sitting across the table from a different person. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. So, you know, it's, it's like uh, 
Well, we'll talk about it with the risk management piece, but we have some thoughts on that. So anyway, I've been in Glendale. So that gives me uh, 43 years uh, in the fire service, and uh, I probably should. You think you're going to stick with it? I I don't know if I'm really going to do it for, you know, my career. You in your final 20? Yeah. Think about mountain biking and bodybuilding. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Good. Yeah, excellent. That's hand good. modeling. Yeah. yeah, hand modeling. Yeah, <laughs> for you. Yeah, I just started modeling for birth control myself. I'm, oh, yeah, nice. So, yeah, they, they 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 put me right on the poster. I'm doing a lot of comparison <laughs> work. I'm the before picture for many different things. Well, uh, I started that club, Sex Without Partners, but <laughs> there's only a handful of members. And is that inappropriate for the? I might have. So you said you haven't had to delete anybody no, yet. There's, there's nothing that's oh, inappropriate no. about that. Uh, the whole thing's pointless. It says. Uh, uh, on the podcast, there's a big E for explicit. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we're the, I thought it was excellent. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, we serve finger sandwiches. And <laughs> well, so uh, I think one of the things that, that I really wanted to kind of get into today is, and, and you have a unique perspective that I'm not sure anybody else actually has in the American Fire Service. So you were here. You talked a little bit about working at the uh, Southwest Supermarket Fire, uh, being the senior advisor there, and then really uh, the part you left out is, having a huge hand in what our organizational response was. Obviously, Alan set the tone with, hey, we are going to make this better, and we are, we, 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 we are going to improve this. And, 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 and you're part of it in, in actually making that happen. So, so for me personally, Brett Tarver's incident is, is the foundation for at least my understanding and, and, and I think our organizational understanding of risk management and what that actually means. And then we had the risk management plan prior to that, but it, now we really had to start talking about it and, and, and what does that really look like on the fire ground. Um, and then you now then go on to Houston and have a couple really serious incidents and specifically and interestingly enough you have the southwest supermarket fire in phoenix you have the southwest in fire in houston and where you lose four firefighters that day three are uh seriously and horrifically injured to the point where all three of those additional firefighters uh, are no longer firefighters and one actually passes away uh captain bill dowling right after right. Uh, uh not long afterwards so you had to really introduce the concept of risk management to an organization that didn't really embrace risk management. So, um, and then we look at it today, there's this national, a, lot, a, a big conversation going on nationally about, about search and rescue. And, and, and uh, my, uh, the way I'm equating it is, is there's two pretty distinct camps is, uh, uh, is you, you either care about our victims or you don't. You're really, really into search and rescue, and that matters, and, and you're there for them, or you don't. And, and the idea really is that safety and giving a shit about our customers and being good at search and rescue and actually taking risk when, when it's appropriate uh, can't mix in the same conversation as actually being safe. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> well, what's your me, thoughts? Yeah, so let me, let me, there's a lot there. So yeah. First of all, I think back with the Brett Tarver is that uh, prior to that, we made some false assumptions, right? So that was that was really the learning moment for all of us that we thought we could 
you know, firefighter would get in trouble. We'd go in, we'd pull the firefighter out. You know, a couple guys could do that. Yeah, throw him over our back. Yeah, throw him over our back and walk out. And well, we found out, you know, everybody knows the stats on that now. What, it takes 15 firefighters to save one firefighter. And out of those 15, how many are going to get in trouble? Yeah, one in five. One in five. So um, we all know, but we all learn that through our um, through our RIC operations that we did after that. Our actual, uh, how many drills, hundreds of, hundreds of drills going through that so with false assumptions and i think um you know same with houston so i, I wouldn't say uh, houston had you know they, they cared about risk management they had lost uh, i think in the city of houston they lost 71 firefighters uh throughout the history of the houston fire department they, they've been around a really really long time and they lost you can kind of see a trend i have the the uh, poster on my wall it has all the helmets of all the firefighters i look at it every day and, but there was a trend, right? So there, we, they lost a lot of, we lost a lot of firefighters to uh, 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 vehicle accidents, a lot of firefighters to vehicle accidents. Then we just had some really terrific events with wind-driven fires. And, uh, and then we had the Southwest Inn. Southwest Freeway is actually what it is. It's okay. on Southwest Freeway where um, the building just fell on us as, as we entered the building. Um, but they, they, uh, you talk about a group of people that have been motivated even prior to me arriving there about wanting to be safe, but at the same time, they wanted to be, uh, you know, aggressive. And we use that term aggressive, you know, you showed me, uh, and we'll talk more about that, but you showed me a poster, you texted me something that, that kind of gives the number of how many civilians have died and how many firefighters have died. Yeah. What, yeah. what was that? So mean? it was like, uh, it was a conversation about search and, you know, that, that idea of they're worth the risk. Yes, yeah. they're worth the risk. They always have been worth the risk. Um, but uh, I think it was 2018, and if I remember those numbers right, it was uh, 3,400 fire fatalities, I think, in, in the year 2018, and four firefighter fatalities, specifically involved in interior fire attack, search and rescue type stuff. So, so for me, and that's where we really ought to jump off on this discussion, I thought a lot about that since I uh, looked at that text, and you're pulling out now, I think. But so the fact that you think about the craziness of this and um, – you know, we're all B-shifters in this room, but think about the fact that we lost less firefighters, so we must be doing something wrong, right? So we only lost four firefighters. We must be doing something wrong. We've lost all those civilians, but we lost less firefighters, so we're doing... We should lose more firefighters if we lose that many civilians. That's almost what that says there, which is absolutely ass-backwards than what we ought to think. And uh, you got the number? Yeah, so it was actually 2,334 civilian home fire fatalities uh, in 2018, four firefighter fatalities in interior residential uh, operations. So, so what do you think they're trying to say with that? I mean, that's pretty important. Well, I, I think the what I feel like they're communicating is that, uh, see, it's not that dangerous. See, it's we should be doing more things right. that walk closer to that line of danger or uh, uh, and, you know, we've got some fudge factor here. We could kill some more guys and it really wouldn't be that alarming. That's that's my impression. I, that's I, my take. Back, that's kind of where I'm at, too, with that. You said it very well. But so you just think about that and, and you think that's 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 information that we call TBU. True, but useless. There's, it, it absolutely doesn't help anything by knowing what you just said there. 
because you really got to look. We talked about, I mean, thanks to Matikowski and, and his group. Do I say his name right? I always get it goofy. Yeah, it's an Irish name. Yeah, Irish. And, you know, thanks to those sounds guys. Mexican. <laughs> That's not Mexican? That's not Mexican name? That sounds Mexican. Highland. Highland, yeah. Mexican. <laughs> yeah. Not a desert. Oh. Uh, I can say that because I'm married to Mexican, to so all you people out there. Actually, I can't say that. My wife says, just because you're married to me, you can't say those kind of things. I would, you call me dumb white boy, so I guess... <laughs> You shouldn't be able to say that. Yeah, even. <laughs> but so you just look at that true but useless information there, and and you really got to boil it down to. Matikowski's been telling us for years now. I mean, this isn't yesterday that fires burn completely different than what we thought. So, if we're killing, and you could say we're killing, if that many. Uh, people are dying in house fires. Why are they dying in house fires? We've already said that the fire, the the fire growth is so fast nowadays uh, i know there's a big word for that you're going to use the e word the fire growth is exp- you know. exponential yeah i know because yeah. you always use the big words uh-huh. on me because you're married to a doctor so it makes you almost a surgeon yeah <laughs> stayed at holiday inn last night too <laughs> yeah right. well, I, trust me i know a lot yeah so <laughs> you people just ask me <laughs> you people out there listening he really is married to a doctor yeah we don't know how yeah. or why yeah. or how that well, all worked out but somehow she, she deserves a chance to make one bad decision in her life. <laughs> <laughs> and she's living with it. <laughs> but she gets a good mountain bike. So um, so you just look at that. It's like, so why are, you know, what? when are we arriving at the incident? You know, Brunacini would always talk about the event profile is you got this, you got this linear line that is time, and then you got the profile of the fire, which is growing. And it was always kind of like a, at an angle of a probably, what, maybe 30 degrees or something. And it was that, a straight line. Yeah, there was a straight line moving up where an incident moves, and then you got the timeline. And somewhere within there, we intersect with the incident. So it may be eight minutes down the road. The incident's grown so much at that 30-degree angle. We interact there. Only from that point on could we make a difference in the lives of uh, the rescue ability of those people, the lives of those people. So now we're learning that that line wasn't a 30-degree line. It's much sharper than that. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a really st- steep curve. Right. Yeah. And you see the things that they that, that UL produces and Dan and all the other really smart folks there at, at UL and, 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 and had been at NIST. Uh, that's a, it's a steep curve, and it really ramps up and gets serious much right. more quickly. Right. So if if it if if people are in that event uh, portion there continuum, I should say, if they're at that event continuum, and we arrive on the scene after that has reached a point, a certain height in that curve, we're not going to have a whole lot of success saving those people because they've already succumbed to the fire and the smoke. And they're in the position where they're not going to make it anyway. So when you look at all those firefighter deaths, uh, excuse me, uh, civilian deaths, you think, well, at what point in the fire? We need to know more about that, I guess is what I'm saying. You just can't throw that number out and say, you know, this is because we're not doing enough. Because uh, we would tell you that we can't make up for that time. If we arrive on the scene when that continuum of that event is up high and it's consumed a lot of that um, atmosphere and it consumed a lot of the building we can't make that up and that's what these guys are saying they're saying that somehow we're not doing enough to make up that time to impact those citizens Um, and that to me is really um, I think the key and you know it's hard so the people that are making this argument it's they're they're playing on um, the emotional uh, piece of firefighters because firefighters we get in the business to make a difference 
So now they make a statement as if we're not impacting them, we're, we're, we're cowards, right? We're cowards because we're not impacting them. That's, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all or nothing. Yeah. You're badass or you're a coward. There's right? no in-between. And that's, and that's not the case because I can tell you that fires pretty much burn the same way across the country. In, in Phoenix, a house fire burns a lot like it does in Houston, like it, a lot does, like it does in Oceanside and Glendale. That's the same house fire we're getting. The difference is the amount of uh, people that you get on the scene and when you get those firefighters on the scene. That's, that's the big difference. So why would we want to argue with each other? I mean, this is like so goofy. The fact that we start arguing with, the, with each other about the risk piece when we should be arguing with our city managers and our politicians about the resource piece. If people are dying in fires because we're arriving eight minutes later, let's get more resources and let's get them in a position to where we can impact the survivability of those customers. So don't get mad at each other. Let's get mad at our politicians and the people that are actually writing the check for firefighters. Yeah, completely. So my goal uh, with this topic would be to, so we have a lot of young company officers. We have a lot of experienced company officers. We have a lot of young new battalion chiefs. We have a lot of experienced battalion chiefs. What is it that, uh, how do we want them to react? And what is it that we want them to do? I want to really focus on, or I'm trying to really focus on helping our company officers make these really, really good decisions. Because if you, if they pay strict, attention to just this type of stuff they feel like wow i must not be risking enough i must yeah. not be doing enough i must not be aggressive enough when uh to me making really smart decisions about when you actually can impact uh life safety when you should impact life safety and the best part of the ul information that's coming out there is the sooner you're putting water on that fire the sooner you're actually making it better for anybody inside there and 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 that application of that risk management is recognizing okay when do i have savable uh or the opportunity for savable person and, and and savable environments and i really need to get after it that's where i want people to be aggressive so as a fire chief um how do you what's your expectation so it's it's interesting what you said just real quick so um Back in the 70s, when I became a firefighter, we would do exactly what we're doing now. We would put water on the fire early. And then somewhere along the way, a group of people said, we're chicken shits and we're cowards. We need to do that interior search before we put any... Did, did it have something to do with the development of our turnouts and PPE? Well, and they we got were, us in uh, deeper, right? Yeah, we were able right. to get in deeper. So, you know, I had, I had bunker boots and those things were, uh, you know, those are dangerous. And we all had them back then. But so we got... so. The, I think our equipment allowed us to get in deeper and do some things and really not focus as much on putting a firefighter out, fire out as we were doing. Uh, we thought we were saving lives. And, and now we're finding out that putting a fire out doesn't impact the customer in any negative kind of way. You know, it doesn't push the fire. It doesn't put the heat, push the heat. It actually puts the fire out. So what I would say with company officers, back to where you were at there, if, you, if you're studying the eight functions of command and you really use that decision-making model, there's a, there's a front end of that where you, when you arrive on the scene, you focus on the critical fire ground factors. Yeah, what, what actually is happening at that incident and what is really important and, and more, maybe, maybe, maybe more critically, what's not important? You got it. It's you got to identify what you can accomplish on the fire ground once you arrive on the scene. You can't make up any time 
you, you, you really, the risk management piece, I mean, many times we think the risk management starts when we leave this fire station. Well, we can gather information and start thinking about the critical fire ground factors, but driving faster isn't safer for us. So you got you got to get there safely. And then when you get on the scene, when you, when you have an opportunity to, to meet that, um, that event is when you got to go through your decision-making model and you got to focus on those kind of things that are going to hurt firefighters and it's going to hurt our customers. And what, what is the number one thing that's going to hurt the firefighter and the customers to fire, put the fire out. And so we're learning that, uh, that is the right thing to do. But I, I want, you know, company officers to, to really understand that they're not cowards, because of this information that's coming out now. If you're doing the right thing, you're identifying the critical fire ground factors, you're taking whatever resources you have, whether it's two firefighters with you or one firefighter, and you're using those in the best way possible to put yourselves in a position to put the fire out and protect the customers, that's the best thing you can do. And we gotta, we almost have to keep it really simple for, for everybody because it is just that simple. But to think that, you know, I'm going to make this up. You know, we used to have that rescue alibi. We, we, we actually called it that. Remember that? Oh, absolutely. Every fire, there was a, there was a, uh, every fire, there was a mommy with six kids in the back bedroom. Every car accident was a nun full of orphans. And every EMS call was a heart attack waiting for somebody to die. And then we, it was we, permission to do really crazy, yeah. stupid shit. <laughs> but it was also permission on the EMS world for those guys to keep us doing some crazy shit. Like you're, you're right. gonna, you're paramedics, you're gonna go on every call. Well, no, we don't need to have you. So we're getting better at that, but we're starting to go backwards with our thinking regarding the fire ground. We need to identify the critical fire ground factors. We need to develop a quick plan, and we need to engage the fire. I think that's where we don't, we can't make up time, but that's where we can be most efficient when we can do those things to, to define what's most critical and go after those things instead of the other things that, that potentially aren't critical. And that's where, for as a new company officer, it's like, hey, what's, what's most critical? What's going to kill us? What's going to kill them? And how can we affect that quickly and get after that? Versus all the other bullshit. That's that the professionalism like that. and the efficiency part of it that I really want. Uh, I want our captains and our and our b- battalion chiefs to understand. Um, and uh, so there's a, there's an assumption then. So um, that if you if you uh, if we're not really serious about search and and getting in there, you have to get in there, and you've got to hang your ass out dramatically every single time. Uh, that um, there, there's no room for aggressiveness in the stuff that we're talking about now. What what you just described right now, right. Terry, is is what you want our company officers to do. Um, as a fire chief, do you expect aggressiveness? Because I feel like you do. No. And, yeah. and what does that mean? So Bruno Cena used to say it like you know, don't pick a fight with people, but if you pick a fight with them, fight like hell. Well, that should be kind of the way we, we, we manage the incident. It's like and we, we got away from the words aggression and we use assertion and all kinds of different words. But the key is if you, if you make a decision as a company officer to, uh, to knock down the fire and then do some sort of interior search, uh, interior search, do that in an aggressive sort of way. Don't fuck around in there, you know. And that's what happens sometimes. Is these guys, they're, they're not making the decision. What did, what did Brunacini used to say? Ready, fire, aim. Mm-hmm. 
That's what these guys are doing because they want to be so aggressive. I got to do, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it aggressive. Try that at home and see how that works out for you. <laughs> so on the fire ground, it's like, what are you going to do? What are we going to accomplish? So there are times when you feel like, hey, we should have been a little more aggressive on this incident and here's the impact. But we had to play those out in a specific incident during the after action review. I don't think we do uh, as, as, a, as a culture, we don't do really well after action reviews. Now, Agreed. it's been I one of the things that, that I've wanted us to do forever. It's like, you know, don't get everybody under a tree and tell them, you know, everything's fine. And, the, you know, the sky was nobody got hurt. So we're all OK. That's bullshit. Call out, hey, what can you have done better? What better? What could I have done better? What kind of information did I need from you to make better decisions? What kind of support did you need from me? Those need to be decisions on every incident. Led by the boss. Led and the go. boss uh, initiating it and, uh, and taking part in the critique, meaning everybody gets an opportunity to say stuff that they that they would have wanted to do better or differently. So I think some of our chiefs or some of the chiefs that I've been exposed to try that. So I'll throw something at you guys that, that may or may not be surprising. But you can see culturally when that boss puts that question out there, how do we do, what do we do well, and they're asking for feedback, nobody wants to answer. And, and, and because they're afraid of... They probably had a bad experience. Yeah, or, or like something, right. somebody you know jumping down their throat, or you know not being able to speak it. Like me, I don't give a shit. You, like you know my personality. Like I'm going to speak whatever I think is appropriate for that time, um, and I'm okay to give that feedback and say I think we did this, I, I I think we did this well or whatnot. But but I see that as 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 a battalion chief, whoever's doing that uh, after action review isn't. Uh, promoting the environment to get those people to speak. And like, and it could be as simple as, hey, I want your feedback. I want to hear this. I, I need to get better. We need to get better. Stuff like that works. You see people start to cower. And I've seen uh, battalion chiefs in a good way try and ask somebody, and they're like, oh, shit, I'm, the teacher just called on me. I don't want their... Yeah, they're so... so well, so it, it, like, Hinton, like Hinton said, uh, the first time they hear that question can't be at, a, at an incident review right. or an incident critique or a tailborne critique. It's got to start the day one when the relationship starts building. Now, you may not have a relationship with every person or every fire company that you ever run an incident with, but uh, uh, you at least set that expectation and that reputation, so to speak, will right. get out there. And so that when you get called, when you get asked that question, hey, man, uh, did I screw you up when I did this right. uh, as, as the IC? And uh, they, they're not shocked by it, and they know, okay, I actually, it is safe for me to, to really answer that question. And there's ways to get through that where you could ask, ask every uh, company officer at that incident and, and make them answer you. What did you do that you could do better and find something? Because we could always find something. I could find something every day in my life that I need to do better, right, at every moment. And then what did you do that really you did right? What made the difference? And then you can actually have that conversation with the other companies. What did that company do that really helped you out? And you start that. But, you know, Bruno's, another thing Bruno Senior used to say is, so firefighters make a mistake in public, whether it's a training session or at a, after action, and that's organizational suicide, right? So for the rest of their career, they're known as the guy who didn't put the hose clamp on this fire on this day. We do that to ourselves, and everybody's done that. But we got to get to a point in our organizations where we can actually challenge each other, and I know it's it's easier said than done, and actually be embarrassed a little bit by the goofy shit we do. Uh, I would guarantee that for every person who is on a fire ground who feels like, 
you know, I, I could have, I could have made more risk. I could have done something to, to create a little bit of a, I guess, put myself in a little bit more danger. There's two other guys singing, man, I'm, I'm lucky I didn't get fucked up by what I just did. And that's what I'm finding on the fire grounds. You talk to guys in serious conversations and ask them later on, they'll go, oh, chief, we had one the other day and I did this and man, I just lucked out on that one. Why didn't you say that at the critique? We need to learn that. Oh, I don't want to say it in front of those guys. So we're learning on both ends from that, from our actions, whether they're too aggressive, whether we're doing something goofy or whether we're not doing enough. But to throw it out and say the American Fire Service is becoming pansies because we have less firefighter deaths and more uh, civilian deaths and house fires is just absolutely ridiculous. Quit arguing with each other, right? And as a company officer, do everything you can. So every, every fire, and I, people say we don't have as many fires as we used to. I think we do. We have just as many in Glendale as we ever had. And sometimes it seem, feels like we have more. And they seem to be more serious. When we have yeah. them, they're actually more serious, more legitimate for a lot of the reasons that, that we talked about and what, what, what we're building our places out of and what, what's in them and all that other stuff. Well, you think about this conversation as it moves forward. Now it's an internal, like we're sitting at the kitchen table and I'm calling you a sissy and you're calling me a knucklehead. That's, that's where we're at now. But if this information, if these, the people that actually feel this way, if this information gets out, Oh, it's on social media to the every day. If it gets out to Mrs. Smith and her, her daughter dies in a fire because Unfortunately, the firefighters didn't get there for nine minutes, and she just consumed in the fire before we even got there. And you got this information that, oh, these firefighters didn't do what they should have done. And now we invite our neighbors and our customers in, our conversation about risk. We need to fix it in-house first, and we need to look at it real seriously before we start throwing that out there. How? How does that happen? So... um it, to me, it's a relational thing. It's it's an educational thing. It's a training thing. So our focus uh, in, in a lot of the training that I've done and then, and then the teaching outside of the department is we are focused on strategic decision making. And I'm really right. trying to improve cr- the critical thinking abilities of, of firefighters uh, at all levels, firefighters, uh, supervisors, second level supervisors, all that. And so the better we understand the fire environment, the better we are at being able to size it up, the better we are at being able to measure it with the critical fire ground factors and figure out what truly matters right now, what truly doesn't, is that's the crux to being able to use the risk management plan. Because if you don't understand the problem, you can't make effective decisions with regards to risk management and when to engage and when, you re- when we're really going to hang our ass out and when we shouldn't hang our so ass out. So are you saying we need to develop better problem solvers? I think we need to develop, yes, I, I think we need to improve better problem-solving ability in our firefighters. And at the same time, that comes with the empowerment of uh, problem-solving and critical thinking, um, which I think, at least in the, in the Valley here, we've, critical thinking and empowerment has been a big, uh, a big part of our, our stuff. Uh, it's different, a little bit different within each department, but I can speak wholeheartedly within Phoenix, and right. we have empowered our firefighters. Um, yeah, so uh, we definitely need to work on that. It is not, we are not doing, dealing in algorithms. We are not dealing in checklists necessarily to right. say, well, well if, if I see this, this is exactly what I need to do. No, there's so much stuff to take in that, uh, um, 
that we need to be we need to constantly be working to develop that ability to understand the conditions, understand the construction, understand the relationship between the two, understand the time, and understand our true capabilities. Can what can we actually do right now that's going to be impactful yep. or the most impactful? And let's get after it. Well, because we talked and, uh, you know, how I was raised through our training environment was fast, aggressive, fast, aggressive, fast, aggressive, fast, aggressive. But when you, for me personally, when you put that first and that's how you think, you don't become a problem solver. You become someone that's not a thinker. Yeah. That's, 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 that's ready, willing, fire, aim. Yeah. Really, <laughs> really, really just get off that truck and do whatever you can. Kick that ass. Particular <laughs> moment instead of slowing down. And I, I think. Uh, the public d- doesn't realize how much problem solving or critical thinking goes into that first 60 seconds of, of, of what's going on. And there's a lot going on and they don't understand that, that, that you're trying to manage your, your, your engineer, the guys in the back. Like you're, you're helping those guys make decisions as well as looking at that scene and analyzing what the hell is going on to be able to make that, that timely decision and make that right decision because we don't get a second take, right? We get that one shot at it. So um, when you go back to work tomorrow or whatever shift you have, so what, what are the things that occupy your time, right? So you're going to go in, are you going to spend time, is there dedicated training to this decision-making model piece? So we created something and we're, we just started last week in Glendale because we see that we're slipping with that critical decision-making. So we started Tactical Tuesdays. So every Tuesday we put together fire problems now and organizationally we work through these fire problems. See, when you say we hurry, 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 when, when we're young firefighters, when you're taking a plug, hurry, hurry, hurry. When you're extending a line, hurry, hurry, hurry. When you're thinking, you you need to slow down your mind a little bit, right? And you can still be doing that multitasking where you're taking care of things physically, but at the same time, slow down, look at the critical fire ground factors, think about what you actually want to accomplish here. At the same time, you're hurry, hurry, hurrying. But we get that hurry, hurry, hurry stuff, we get it mixed up in our mind with we need to make decisions fast. Well, you need to make good decisions and you need to take in all the critical information before you make those decisions. And you said it, and you could use the accountability model for that, right? So oh, hell yeah. you said it, what are the expectations? Then you train to those expectations. But we're going to spend a lot more to- uh, a lot more time talking about, because you're right, seems like sometimes we only talk about fires after the fire. We do this, we do this training where we do all the physical pieces, the task level stuff, and then we'll do a little bit of the command training, but not a whole lot of the captain level decision making. And then on the back end, we hold these people, we hold these people, we hold our people accountable in the after action reports. And that's the first time we talked about the fire ground decision making for how long. We have a fire, now let's talk about it. We should be talking about fires all the time. And it seems like we used to do that, but the, you know, the, the culture now is we put on our iPods and we go to an iPod. Look how old I am, right? That's yeah, wrong. do you have a Walkman? I do have, I have that yellow one. I have the yellow one that you can use underwater. Yes. That plays cassettes. Because I always want to listen to my music underwater. Cassettes underwater. Remember that yellow one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had one of those. I probably still have that with my knob radio. You're but, going back back to the future days, right? Oh yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> but Brown. but I think we need to get we need to come together and have these conversations. Or and we don't. So I would tell captains if you're a young captain or even an old captain, bring your crew together and talk about expectations for each crew member. Talk because there's nothing worse than going to a fire and feel like you didn't do a good job. It, that's we, worse than getting in trouble. Right. That's worse than discipline. It's that's like, oh. that is that is our peer. Uh, 
yeah. the, the pure part of our job. We don't want to look stupid in front of yeah. each other. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, the, the worst thing that I was ever had said to me in my life was uh, I disappointed somebody, whether it's mm. your dad or the fire chief or the customer <laughs> or your firefighters. You don't want to disappoint your firefighters. So you need to really have these conversations up front, and we're not doing it. We're, we're, doing, we're spending time doing goofy shit sometimes, and I understand that. But what, and, and then there's uh, fire chiefs, when they have budget cuts, the first thing they do is they knock out their training piece. Um, we have to have training, and we need to support our, our fire captains in their fire stations to give them time. Hey, this is your block of time unless you get a call. Here's a fire problem. Talk about this. And we just present them with that, and they'll have great conversations. But we're not talking about critical decision-making models. We're just not. Yeah. Um, so uh, talk about that a little bit, Terry. Talk about the relationship of that dedicated, and you've started it already, the, the dedicated, how much a department dedicates to training, to training and quality training, not right. stupid training, how that really does support the conversation. Because if if strategically and, and at a policy level, the organization, the fire chief is saying, hey, man, I, I care about our customers. I care about you. I want you to be good at your job. Those words are one thing, but demonstrating it with so resources and support yeah. to training is a totally other thing. So after, um, talk about an engaged group of firefighters. So after we lost our fire, four firefighters, uh, went to the mayor, and we got we to gotta fix this. It's going to take some money. We got to do some things. We developed, organizationally, we went through that really quickly, even before the NIOS report came out or the the Texas Commission on Fire Protection came out with their report. We did our own internal study, and we realized that we needed to spend money and spend time, and that's the key, right, time and money. So we implemented the Blue Card Program, the Fire Ground Survival Program. The IAFFGS Program. And yeah. the F-STAR with the stuff that Matikowski, we had Matikowski come in. So our focus organizationally, we had the entire organization on those three areas, and, and they were millions of dollars that it took to get this organization moving forward. And and myself and the uh, assistant chief of operations visited many fire stations as we could. Obviously, that not all 90 of them. And we would attend these tra this training session because nothing was more important than getting our people operating on the same page and being safe. And every one of them wanted it. They, it wasn't like you show up with a group of firefighters and they're like, oh, shit, I got to talk about fireground shit today. But you guys being there shows the importance of it. Like, I, hey, just go do this and whatever. Like, when you're there participating in that, like, that speaks volumes to, like, right there, like, you know, lead from the front. Like, you're leading from the front right you, there. Well, so, uh, so just so everybody uh, who may not know actually know what F-STAR is, that's uh, uh, Firefighter Safety Through Advanced Research. That's using things that UL, NIST, a lot right. of these other folks uh, have been doing tons of work and we've been spending tons of money on is actually getting that information out to Science. the firefighters. That's, that's, that's it. That's crazy. That's it. We, had, we developed, even before we lost the four, our four wonderful firefighters, we lost a firefighter in a wind-driven fire and we developed a wind-driven uh, training packet that we went out to every fire station and talked about wind-driven fires. But you're right, the fire chief, um, if the fire chief's too busy to talk about safety of firefighters, then he, he probably needs to do something else. You gotta make time for it. You gotta get your leaders out, your operations chief. My operations chief is a great guy right now, Gary Benson, and he's in a fire station every day talking to firefighters. Uh, if, you're, if you watch it, most operations chiefs 
or at meetings. We did that where we had training sessions and you say, okay, this is going to be a training session for chief officers. When I got to Glendo, it was this way. And we went in there the first meeting and all we talked about was HR bullshit. <laughs> we talked about finance. We talked about reporting. The good stuff. Yeah. We talk, I said, no, no, you guys, you got chief officers together. So now we do an after action review at every, because we got fires. We'll do one after action review and one pre-planned building. And we spend time talking about training and what other things you want to cover. So we, we did that in Phoenix early on when we started, uh, when Bruno directed myself and Nick and John. Uh, we, we went to meetings and everybody wanted our meeting time because Bruno says, you guys have this four-hour block or three-hour block. At the, it's four hours at the time. So everybody, the HR director, hey, I need to get 15 minutes. Uh, the finance guy, hey, I need to get 15 minutes. No. You can't have it. You, you got to. You have no Find your own time. <laughs> yeah. Find your own time. And by, by the way, your shit is not learning. So you can send yours out on an email. You yep. can put yours on a document. The first thing we tell about training is, is it training or is it information? If it's training where you're actually trying to, you know, what's the definition of training? You're actually trying to create, right? A cultural change yeah, or some, some type of positive change. Some type you want some, them to do something afterwards. Right. Uh, they say effective learning, right? That's what you want. You want effective learning. And so the information that they were getting, who cares? You'll figure that out later. There's no there's a lot of discretionary time. On the fire ground, we're making decisions with very little discretionary time. we got to make good decisions. And then if you're in a position, you need to have a plan B, right? Always have a plan B. But that's, I think that we, organizationally, we're not supporting our fire captains, as fire chiefs, we get all, and I'm sorry, I, I know I probably should talk more from the uh, supervisor perspective, but I've been doing this fire chief thing. No, no, you're here because you're a fire chief, I've heard. But it's like <laughs> fire, fire chief? chiefs need to support their their company officers, and they need to say, this is your time to talk to your crews, and you help. Here's the template. Here's the curriculum. Go out, spend an hour, do this. We don't do that very well. We got them on I guarantee, think about the next meeting you're going to go to. It has nothing to do with fire ground survival. It has nothing to do with the customer. It has nothing to do with risk. Yeah, I, I spent time in corporate America six or seven years in that. And so lots of meetings, stuff like that. But what I realized in the fire service as a whole, they like to have a meeting, to have a meeting, to have a meeting that gets oh. zero accomplished. There's, there's nothing really uh, valid or substantial that comes from that. You don't learn anything from it. It's just something where you're like, oh, can't get this uh, two hours back. As a new deputy chief in Phoenix, I was assigned to a subcommittee. I'm not going to, this isn't a lie, to look into why we had so many subcommittees. <laughs> Bernicini did that. You didn't fix it because I'm still going to a lot of meetings. Bernicini says, Garrison, the Terry card, we got so many, so many subcommittees. I want you to form a subcommittee and say we got why we have so many. I said, You sure that? And we did. We identified, we eliminated a few of them, and, and then we eliminated ours at the end, right? Because there was a good move. Yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> leading by example. <laughs> see, Brunacini, you could walk in his office, uh, regardless of who you were, and, you know, up in the, we call it the puzzle palace. But you go up in the puzzle palace and walk in his office and talk to him about fire ground stuff. And you, would, you guys that knew him, you would thought that he was on a fire engine two weeks ago. He never wore an SCBA. He was never in a closed cab truck. But because he was a fire chief, and, and I'm guilty of that too, thank God, is I'm more connected to the operator. I'm a terrible fire chief. 
I need good administrative people around me to help me with budgets and talk to personnel and finance folks and legal. I want to be an ops chief in the fire chief position, and I drive my ops chiefs crazy with that. But that's where my focus is. If I got a choice to go here or there, I'm going to go talk to the firefighters. If fire operations went away, would any other of those uh, sections of the fire department still be around? <laughs> we have a deal in, in, that I get to say to the council is every every minute we spend and every dime we spend in the fire department to support fire, fire safety, and customer service. That's it. We If we're doing something that doesn't support either one of those, spending money or time, we got to look at it and, and just eliminate it. Um, that's the key, right? My job as a fire chief is to support the firefighters, and I, I got to say that to 16 council members in Houston and the, and the council members in Glendale now. Is if I first meet them, I go, hey, you know, I don't work for you, right? And they get kind of funny looking at you, and I, and I quickly say, I work with you. I work for the firefighters who work for the customers. So as fire chiefs, we need to support our firefighters and give them the time to be safer. Wouldn't it be terrible if they said, hey, you know, chief, uh, you didn't really give us enough time to do what we needed to do to be better at our job. You didn't give the resources, the equipment, or the time. We give them the resources. We give them the equipment. We're pretty good at that. We need to give them the time and then the, um, the curriculum to make it safer for their job. Yeah, the time would be tremendous. Like I think that's that that is common everywhere. Like definitely the resources, definitely um, the the information's out there too. You just don't have the time to do it. So I think this is a kind of a good spot to transition. And, and this actually came up when we talked to John. Is uh, when we when we talk about risk management and and what we we're willing to take risk for, I think it's really important to talk about what we don't take risk for or what we shouldn't be taking risk for. And John's uh, point, which uh, uh, that was one of the whole reasons I brought him in here, is talk about a little bit about politics on the fire ground and trying to make political things or trying to make like a risk management decisions based on political considerations. Well, I don't know why you wouldn't want to do that. In Vietnam, it worked really well when the politicians got <laughs> yeah. involved with the operation. Yeah, yeah that was perfect. Yeah. We're all old enough to... They made really good movies later, right? Vietnam <laughs> uh -huh. movies about that because uh, the politicians got involved with the fire ground. Um, every politician would tell you, we need less firefighters. You guys can do it safe. I want you guys to be safe. I care about you guys. You guys are the best thing. We Can you do it with less? Can you do more with less? No, on a fire ground, we've actually looked at the NFPA and the NIT studies and all these to say that it takes this many firefighters to perform this job. we got to arrive within this time frame, and we got to uh, – the first unit has to arrive within this time frame, accomplish these goals, and then we got to have that effective fire force that arrives on the back end that – supports it through these kind of activities and it's all spelled out in nfpa when's the last time uh, one of our firefighters actually looked at that document but it's actually a, it looks like a oh god if they're insomniacs it's a bureac it's a bureac how do you say that bureaucratic bure bureaucratic thank you you guys i am dyslexic so um anyone to alhambra oh right. my dog right <laughs> yeah i stayed up all night wondering if there really was a dog but uh so <laughs> Right? I just really believe that, so on the fire ground, there should be no politics on the fire ground, right? You, you have people that you want to work with and people that you don't want to work with, but you got to use everybody on the fire ground in an effective kind of way. 
I well, don't know what so, Hinton was getting at because he's. I can't. You're gonna have to tell me more. Well, he could have went. Well, anywhere. so uh, think about this way: is uh, do you change or should we? Uh, if I'm a battalion chief and I work for you as the fire chief, do you want me making different risk management decisions based on the council district in which my fire is? <laughs> Enough <Yeah>. said. <laughs> no. That, you know, How crazy is that, right? That's childish and chicken. Yeah. If, if, it, if, it, if, if good decision making and the fire ground and the, and the community and the customers and, the, and, and life safety matters and firefighter safety matters, it is the same decision making every single time, no matter where you're at. And quit worrying about what everybody else is thinking. So that's so you, you talk about that. Is it like the council may uh, have an opinion about that? But we do that to each other. So here in the valley, we have an automatic gauge system. I said it earlier. We have twenty eight different, maybe twenty six, Chris. Twenty eight, yeah, something almost, like that. Yeah. Twenty eight different agencies that operate off the same SOPs, volume two procedures. But there are some fire chiefs that say, well, maybe I only need three people. So you got fire chiefs that want to do things different outside that. We force them. If you're going to be an automatic aid, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but automatic aid, you have to train a certain way. You have to have minimum staffing of four firefighters. you got to operate within this volume two procedures. You have to practice this risk management plan. By the way, it says risk a lot to save lives in a calculated manner. And I think that's a piece that we leave off of those, uh, the, the, new, the new talkers are leaving off the calculated. I will risk. I would expect my firefighters to risk a lot to save savable lives. If they didn't, I would be disappointed in them. But I want them to do that in a calculated sort of way, not in a I'm just going to do it because it feels good way. It's like, why are you doing that? What are you going to accomplish in there? So uh, I think it, we we just need to have standards throughout our system wherever you're working at. If you got through, so here's what happened. When I go to Oceanside, brand new fire chief. Brunacini, I go and I have lunch with him and I say, oh man, this is hard. He goes, what? What is Garrison? And I said, uh, we have three-person staffing. I said, how do, you, how do you fight fires with three-person staffing? He says, you fight it, fires with three-person staffing using a three-person staffing model, not a four-person staffing model. <laughs> he said, that would be the most dangerous thing you can do is to use a four-person staffing model it doesn't make it right, but no, uh, says, yeah, that's what he's getting. He says, Chief, you use your three firefighters and you do the best you can, you know, <laughs> pay the bill. But it's like it was it was interesting because um, I was I kept thinking, you know, we're not going to be as safe because we have three. Well, we need to be as safe. We can't. That's not an excuse to not be safe. We got to do more. We got to risk more because we have three. No, we need to take those. It changes three. your expectations of it, what those three people can get done. You right? can yeah. only get so much done, yeah. right? If you if you have a, a three wallpaper hangers and or you have two, you, you're going to get done what you can get done. Right. So, I think that's the key for the, for the rest of the country because we're very fortunate here. Four person staffing, uh, Houston four person staffing. Oceanside three-person staffing. They're not less. They're not less aggressive. They don't have a different risk model, but they 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 do things in a different sort of way to get the job done. Your strategy. I mean, I don't know if your strategy has to change, but your tactics have to change to be able to accommodate for less resources. Like you know, with the, with the construction company, it's like if I send two guys to the house to do a bunch of mill work and I expect them to do the the work at three or four, I'm going to fail every time. Every time. So I think, so if you break it down, you said it, tasked, tactical, 
at strategic levels, right? So the task level stays the same. You can only get so much done. The tactical level where how many groups of people does it take to accomplish a specific job in a geographical area on the fire ground changes. You still need to get that job done, but you got to use more companies to get that same job done. And then the strategic level changes because everything slows down. You know, there's a reason why that uh, we always like timed ourselves. Like how long does it take to take a line? How long does it take you to get an inch and a half extended or an inch and three quarters extended? Or how long does it take you to ventilate a roof? The reason we do that when we're training is because when we get on the fire ground, I'm the incident commander, and I assign you to do a specific task, and I'm waiting for some sort of accomplishment on that task. Oh, okay, they finished it within this time frame. If it doesn't happen within that ordinary time frame, I'm wondering, did they get hurt? Uh, did, did they need help? Do they need help? Did something else occur? So it does change the way you operate on the task level and the tactical level. You just need to make sure that on that strategic level, you still ch stay within that uh, risk management plan. That doesn't change. Right. Yeah. Risk management does. Just for the record, we need to sell in three-person staffing, but it's a great it's a great conversation of no, how you adjust that. Yeah. No, I don't. I I would not uh, want anybody to have three-person staffing, but the the firefighters out there that have three-person staffing and the fire chief. They can't control that. That's a decision made by the politicians. They're yep. going to spend this much money and take this amount of risk. Why you would do that, I I know why. Hold the the answer to it is hold hold the politicians accountable for that. You got to. You got to have every conversation has to be around. We need we need to get that fourth person. Three would be I can't even imagine trying yeah. trying to fight a house fire with three. I mean, there's every day, yeah, all day. There's no way. Yeah. Get your ass kicked every single time. Do yeah. do support work. Do truck work. Do yeah. all that with three. No. You know, we used to. It, it was a time in Phoenix where we, you know Phoenix is 500 square miles, and uh, there was a time when the people that worked downtown said they were better firefighters than the people that worked on the on the outskirts in the urban areas. So oh, that's think, well known. Dude. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's a scientific fact. Yeah, and I would say you know the people that are out in those outskirts, uh, they're great firefighters. They need to make decisions that are really good tactical decisions. They're driving away from their help going on a call. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're not going to get a lot of help for a while. So right. when they oh, make yeah. a decision, like in Daisy Mountain, I told them when I got there, hey, you guys do really good work up here. You The decisions that you make, you're not going to get help for a while. You need to make yeah. sure you make the right decision. Where downtown, you could kind of send a company to the wrong area and you got six more companies staged. We bully. Yeah. We, we, we have a long-standing history. And I, and I kind of mean this complimentary is we bully our fires out. I can speak to that. In the high-volume areas. I worked downtown for 10 years. I can't tell you. If I was for, when we were first in, there was somebody five seconds behind me, and then another person five seconds yeah. behind them. It's like you, you're not resource You're beating poor. them off of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, we used to put fires like that out with uh, two grown men in a wet washcloth. Remember that one? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pretty what sad. else you got? Yeah. Did I um, end it with that? That felt good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think so. It, is it, um. The, the the focus for this and a lot of the conversations I'm, I'm hoping to have is we really want to help our company officers in their decision-making. We want to help their battalion chiefs in their decision-making and the support of the company officers. And so their understanding of risk management, not only what from the fire chief perspective is, is where, what, what can you defend and what, what do you expect? Because you're, you're having to have these conversations with right. politicians and city government, uh, the people who manage city government. 
And and then how do they be? How are they most effective at it down at the street level? Because it's a hard thing. There's nothing about this. Is these are not math problems. You know where the, you get the same answer every single time. They are not algorithmic. Uh, it, it, it's not the uh, uh, pulses VTAC ACLS algorithm. It just no. it, it it isn't that. So um, we're trying to empower our, our our all company officers and all all command officers to make those good decisions. And risk management is a really really hard one because there's pressure from the outside. There's pressure from within. Is I have to do everything I possibly can, and if I die, it's okay. I think it's actually a myth, uh, and I can't necessarily recall the, the, the stereotypical firefighter saving baby. The baby they, they hand the fire or the, the baby out the window and the, but the firefighter perishes. I think if that has happened, it's just this incredibly low um, uh, you know, uh, percentage of the time that it's actually ever really occurred that way. It's, it's, it's much, much different, and the, and the victims are much more. Um, uh, uh, they're much more uh, sensitive to fire environments than we give them credit for sometimes. So I'd like to ask the chief uh, the same thing I asked Hinton. Yeah. This is this is a mouthful. No, so. I won't. Yeah. It, it starts with a pen. Hinton will, but I won't. <laughs> yeah. There's your answer. <laughs> so it starts with a pen light. So. Hinton did, but I don't. <laughs> so if you had a vested interest in myself as a young captain or as a young battalion chief, what would you tell me I need to do to become better in my position as a captain or a battalion chief? And that can be anything. It can be yeah. education. It can be experience. It can be uh, getting a good mentor or whatever. What, what, what would you tell me or tell? Yeah, so... Um, it's That's a good one, huh? <laughs> no, it's, it's a good one. So, you know, one time uh, uh, I heard somebody say that... Um, well, you know what it was? It was, it was the, um, the, the school shooting that we had 12 years ago. Uh, where was the very first school shooting at? Sandy Hook? Yeah. Colorado? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It could have been Columbine. Yeah. Columbine. It's, it was it's Columbine. sad that Columbine. we don't know which yeah. one yeah, actually. Yeah, It was Columbine. So yeah. we had a speak. We had the, the, the principal of Columbine come to a uh, fire chief's symposium here in, in Glendale probably about six years ago. And he had stayed at that school um, till every one of those guys, every student graduated. First grade on. Wow. So he would he could have retired earlier, but he says no. Every even the first grader, if they were in this classroom, if they were at this school or whatever it was, um, was it a high school? Maybe I got I that. I believe yeah. it was a high yeah. school. Yeah. So every student, every freshman, I'm gonna make sure I get this right. It's been a while when you get old. That I'll hurts. Check, but sure. yeah. So every student had to graduate before he retired, and the reason he said that he kept doing his job is because he loved the students. He goes, if you don't, and and he meant that loving in a you know an affection. I care about your welfare kind of way, not loving you know John Hinton kind of behind it. No, I'm just, <laughs> sorry, John. No, he really. You got to care for your firefighters. You got to. He he said he had to care for his students in such a way that he stayed till the very last one successfully left, and then he retired. I think as you start moving up in your organization, you got to care for firefighters. You got to really care about the people that you're going to lead and the people that you're going to work with. And I see so many firefighters, and I heard, I've heard it said. To, I had a guy come in who was one of the worst firefighters on the planet, and uh, <laughs> I was talking to his wife and. 
And I said, so how's he like being a captain? She goes, ah, oh, he feels like it's babysitting. He hates it. Yeah, she told me that you guys had that conversation. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you just you, you think about that. So why would, he, why would he promote to take care? So he didn't promote for that reason, right? He didn't promote to take care of, of the people. And that's what you got to do. So the higher you go up in the organization, the more distant you get from the people that are doing the work, which unfortunately that's just kind of the nature of it. You get uh, you get kind of caught up in other world, but you still got to care about the firefighters more than anything else. They got to be your number one priority. And if that if you really feel that, then what you'll do is you'll focus and you'll spend time and energy thinking about how can you serve them and make it. And all that servant leadership and you know, all those buzzwords, it's all bullshit. You just show up and talk to firefighters and you'll learn so much and you'll listen to them and they'll tell you things and you'll, you'll, man, you'll just go, okay. That's what I would tell anybody moving up in an organization. Don't spend some time studying so you can pass the test, but spend the time out talking to firefighters and see if you really want to do this job and really want to, do you really give a shit about the people? Not everybody does, right? I agree. Not everybody. So how do you teach that? I don't think you teach that. I think that's something that your parents taught you years ago, whether you care or not. But I think that the people that are going to do the best job, because we're, we're going to promote all kinds of people to different levels, but the people that will actually do the best job and be most successful are the people that actually care about the people that they're working for. And I really, it sounds like it's kind of, you know, soft, but um, yeah. I really believe it's got to be about the people. you gotta, you got to love it. And the day you quit loving it, like for me, it was two years ago. But... Uh, <laughs> The day you quit loving it, you probably ought to go do something else, right? So anyway, is that I don't know if I answered. No, you answered that because I think that translates into if you care uh, about making your people better, if you care about um, being there for those people, you're going to do the things that you have to do to become better. It sounds like for you, it was getting a master's degree. You know, you got to like, do all that. Yeah, right? like, but all that stuff you had to do to, to become better for your people, so you, so you could yeah. be a better. So if you want to be a supervisor because you want to, people to call you Skip, right, or you want to be a battalion chief so you can wear a gold badge, that's not going to work. But if you really want to serve the people and you want to do a better job at that, because that's really, if you think back to when you guys promoted, Chris, I remember talking to you, you wanted to do more organizationally. When you're talking organizationally, you didn't want to correct more uh, math assignments, right? You wanted to spend more time helping more firefighters so you got a greater impact in the organization. So for me, it's like if that's the reason you should promote and that's the reason you do promote, you ought to get really good at spending time talking to people. And we know there's people that are uncomfortable. If you know that you that you have a hard time looking somebody in the eye and having a genuine conversation for, with them, don't Specifically promote. a hard conversation. Yeah, don't promote. I've heard a fire chief say that they do not like to visit fire stations because somebody might ask them something or engage them. And, well, that's it might ooh, be hard. That's scary. Yeah, that would, <laughs> isn't that sad? Yeah, I'm a fire sad. chief that won't go to fire stations because I'm afraid somebody's going to make it hard on me and I'm going to have to talk to them. That's bullshit. So we see that with battalion chiefs too. And I'll tell you what, if you are a battalion chief now, and uh, you got that one fire captain who's a pain in the ass because we all got that one person we don't want to spend around, spend any time with, or be around. Go visit them first in the morning. Start your day with the knuckleheads, and then end your day with the people you really like. That was that was my advice that I got from somebody else. God, I hate going to that station. That guy's such an ass. Well, start with him. Get your ass over with, <laughs> and then you, can, <laughs> then you can go on and spend time with people that are uh, you enjoy. 
Because if you put it off, you won't go. And then that guy who's an ass is being an ass to the people because he's not only an ass to you, he's being an ass to a lot of people. And you're not making any difference in that fire station. So you got to support the other people. Can you imagine being stranded with an asshole fire captain and the boss you like never comes by to give you any support? And it's like, oh, come on. Yes, I can't imagine that. Can you? <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's my advice. Really care about people and, sp- and spend time with people. And then you know, when you're not at the fire station, uh, don't even, the best of your ability, don't think about firefighters. Think about your family because then that's the other important piece of that too is people get wrapped around the axle on their job and that becomes their, um, you know, I'm the firefighter. No, you're not, man. You're more than that. So when you're not with them and you're around your family, be with your family because that's the balance that I think a lot of guys lose. I, I see people get caught up in that where they lose their balance in life and a fire department becomes everything. And uh, sometimes things that happen in a fire department are out of your control and it'll throw your whole life off whack. I agree with that because I've, I've, I've said it to people and I say it to people often, um, not because I don't love what I do and I don't love uh, the people I work with and the fire store, stuff like that, but I tell people all the time, it's what I do, it's not who I am. There's, there's, That's it. There, there's more to me than that. I'm a... You know, I'm a son, I'm, I'm a construction owner, whatever my hobbies, a mountain biker, stuff like that. Hell and of a good kisser. Yeah, exactly. That mustache gets in the way, but yeah, stuff like that. And I think when when Hover actually said it, I'm sure you know Kirk Hover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he said, he said in in his podcast, he said, when I left, he goes, what, what I realized was the shit that I thought was important, it was fucking not important. Yeah, it's not. Well, and I, so I'll, I'll just say from the cheap seats, Terry, it's, it's cool to hear you say that because I can, uh, uh, from my perspective, I can say that you, uh, uh, there's tons of proof that you do that. Oh, that's and, nice. and that's, uh, um, not everybody can say that, or, you know, not everybody actually has the time to be able to prove those types of words. You've got a 43 year, uh, uh, history of work that actually proves that. Only as long as I've been on this earth. <laughs> hey, why you got to be mean about it? <laughs> no, you know what? I worked 30 years for Bernasini. Think about that. I was lucky from age 19 all the way for 30 years wow. I worked for that guy. And how could that – and worked close to him in the last 10 years that uh, from the Tarver incident on, we met with him once a week at least and probably more than that at his house, at the office. And the way that he treated people, how could that not rub off on you and think that's the right thing to do? Even though I felt that pretty much that way before I came on, with that just to see that in action and see how important that is, um, yeah, that's if you're going to uh, emulate somebody, that's a person you would certainly want to. Right? So on the other side of that, John mentioned this. Uh, did he ever use your name and the word fuck in the same sentence? Oh, yeah, I, I have him. <laughs> John had no but I, we both had our, uh, our moment with Bernasini. So mine was a uh, four-alarm fire. You heard that? I was at a four-alarm fire, and Nick was the uh, support officer. His, his uh, field incident technician was a captain, and he was the— Lamar? Was, yeah, Lamar Whaley was the IC, and Nick was his uh, support officer. It's kind of the way we do the command team there. We just let the captain keep it, and the, and the chief kind of supports him in that role. And I'm in a command van, and I'm the senior advisor. And 
over the Bernasini stand there, and he'd show up at the fires day or night. I think just, I was a captain operating oh, at this fire. <laughs> and he would just stand back and watch what you're doing, kind of shake his head and give you the finger, like thumbs up or whatever. He never got too engaged. And we had a uh, engineer who's deceased since since then, and he went a little goofy on the fire ground. I've lost my crew. I don't know where that. Well, we knew where he was, and we knew that. The fire was moving because it was a, it was a four alarm going to a five alarm burning across the city and it was headed it was headed east right. We're all, it was a hell of a fire. All fires should head east when you live in Glendale. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, we're on the west side. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we're over here. Well, he had said that twice and we ignored him. And um, Bernasini says, "Hey, you need to find that crew." And I raised my hand at my finger and I said, hey, we'll get to that. And I put my finger up in the air like, you know, like you would do to yeah. your dog when you want him to sit. <laughs> like, sit. And I did that move. Fucking Garrison, you find that motherfucker. And he, and it, he got, and he raised his voice. I peed my pants. It's <laughs> like Actually, a good dog. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a full-on pee. It was just like when the urine drips a little bit out of your, out of your um, body. Orifice? Yeah. No, it's not an orifice, but it, a cylinder. Yeah. And uh, and I right. said yes, sir. And I so I immediately looked at Nick and said, "Find that motherfucker!" And I <laughs> yelled the exact same words at Nick. <laughs> Nick peed a little, and uh, Lynn Whaley, we found him, and it all went well. And I, he never said uh, Alan Brunacini never said anything to me like that. I'm going to tell you one Alan Brunacini story that to tell you, uh, and then I'll oh, I don't know how close we're getting to the end of this. But there's speed round at the end yeah. where he asks real yeah. fast questions. So um, standing at uh, Incident Command Symposium, and uh, the, I was a brand new battalion chief, and I hadn't you know I didn't know Brunacini even know who I was all the time. I liked him, he liked me. I always remember people's name, but I didn't know that. I was out doing my own thing. And I was standing at the urinal, and he walks up, and he goes to take a pee next to me, you know. And uh, I'm 6'4", and he's, you know, not that tall. Not that much. <laughs> and uh, he says, and it's just him and I in the bathroom, and I'm taking a leak. Oh, shit, the fire chief's next to me. Oh, gosh, okay. And so he looks over me. He goes, uh, hi, Terry. And I think, oh, shit, he knows my name. I go, uh, hello, boss. And he looks at me and goes, boss, oh, okay. That works. He actually said it, okay. And he goes, you know what you hate to hear when you're standing next to a guy like this? And I said, what's that? And he goes, nice dick. (laughs) (laughs) And that... To me, that was the moment where he became a human being. Right. And he knew, he sensed that I needed that. I don't know if it was the way my ass squeezed up as I was taking a leak when he walked by or what, but you know, he, he knew exactly what to say at every moment to make somebody feel really comfortable about themselves. Or severely I, uncomfortable. Yeah, I, so I zipped up and left, and, and it was a funny, and I went out to tell Nick, and, and I said, hey, you know what your dad just said? And I went through the whole story, and Nick said, Oh, he always does that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, You're there you special. go. There you go. Outstanding. Well, thank you. Um, uh, again, I, I really appreciate the conversation. I pr- appreciate the perspective of, of of a fire chief, and I appreciate the expect uh, the perspective of somebody who's actually done the work at, at a bunch of different levels. And I think that is helpful to a lot of uh, the of our company officers and a lot of our battalion chiefs that are that are out there and and they have these questions. They're not sure where to where to go or how to get these answers. So. We're, we're doing the best we can to try and help them. Let me, so, let me just say, so I interrupt you. You're on. No, no, well, you're. There's a reason a fire uh, chief's vehicle has lights and sirens on it. Go to the scene. That's all I got to say. Use it. 
Yeah, don't and don't use them to drive because that's just silly. But when you get on the scene, turn them on so the cops don't will let you by, and then park your vehicle and get out and see what people are doing. That's all I can tell. You. If you want to be a, a successful fire chief, show up on incidents. And I haven't done that as much. I always feel like I need to do that more and more and more. And I'm not talking on your days off or whatever. When you're in the office, show up on the scene. So. No, absolutely. Show up in a bunch of different ways, right? Every day. Show yeah. up. Yeah. yeah, show up. That's a, that, that, that's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want, I'll let you wrap it up, Chris. I just want to say, Chief, thanks. Appreciate it. No, I've heard your name a shit ton. Um, there's guys that I only have 14 years on. There's guys around my era that are captains and stuff like that. And it's super beneficial to actually be able to sit in a room and talk to you. And these guys will hear it too. So I just want to say thanks. So yeah, Chris, thanks thank to you for, for yeah, thanks for thanks for taking a leap. I kind of said the same thing to, to other guys is I, I know this is a new, interesting yeah. thing and, and you feel like, oh, that's kind of risky. What the hell do I want to do that for? Um, this is a pretty cool medium. And I, and I hope the conversation today was as, is as natural as it has been for the other ones. Cause I, and I greatly appreciate it. No. And, and I'll, I'll thank you for inviting me. Cause I probably thought exactly what Hinton thought and the crew said, what the hell they want. Can I say on it? That's of any value. That's real. That's what I feel like. But, but when Which you guys start so letting crazy. me talk, it's really crazy. It's uh, it's pretty interesting, but it's like, who wants to listen to a guy like me in a place like this in a time like now? But well, we appreciate you guys from this side of like, you know, being in the fire service, being a younger guy, like we don't have guys like you, like we don't have people to listen to with, with that experience and that experience. It's, you can't replace that with, with education or who your buddy is or stuff like that. So oh, to be able to get it, like, and it's funny too, cause everyone thinks like it's this new medium. I'm like, this is a fucking radio show from the thirties right. just recorded. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can listen to it whenever you want. Right. Yeah. We don't have to like, like hull around the radio at six o'clock to listen to it. I'm like, I'm like, man, this doesn't feel like it's that new, but it's funny. Yeah. No. And so where do I pick up my check? Uh, Jen will have it up front. She'll, she'll sign <laughs> up. Um, we talked about a dollar ninety nine, right? Yeah. yeah you no, get, you, you guys. Get, you you guys get paid in roll, uh, rolled coins. Yeah. <laughs> pay me what I'm worth. Thanks for the water. <laughs> Appreciate you. you guys. There's pay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fun stuff. The money truck just left here. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that, that's so. right. That's if you great. got, if you, yeah. uh, okay. So I've, I've, for the people out there, I'm, I'm sitting in a, a six by six room. Uh, it's about 82 degrees in here, and these three with 82 percent humidity. Yeah, they're yeah. all looking at me, and there's foam on the on the walls to, I guess, insulate the sound. It makes no sense at all because it's only covering about one fourth of the wall. We, we don't want and, people to be able to hear you scream. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> right, bring out the gimp. But so this, it's just so you guys know, this is a, this is a wonderful, wonderful operation. You feel like you could just sit down here and talk. So appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Sweet. That's it. This is episode three of the Tactical Hour. So it's been awesome. Yeah, this is three, man. Yeah, crazy to think that, right? It happened real fast. But so again, if you guys want to leave feedback at Make the Difference Podcast on Instagram, um, Facebook, and you can actually listen to this and download this on Spotify, Stitcher, um, Pocket Cast, and I and Apple Podcasts. So, MySpace. Yeah, not my. No, that's that's an old one. So, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so okay. again, give us feedback. Uh, we want to hear from you guys. Let us have it. Good, bad, or indifferent. Thanks again. We'll talk to you guys soon.